finish up the presentation piece by 11, and that way we'll have a half an hour to kind of answer any further questions or actually complete your advanced directive. Um, and I just was told that they do have another event after this, so we'll try to be timely, which is sometimes difficult. <laughs> um, so I'm Maria Kohler. I'm a resource specialist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in the Office of Care Management. So my primary role is I help people who are having hip and knee surgeries make discharge plans. But many years ago, I took a course on advanced care planning and it became somewhat of my passion. So it's something that I talk about all the time. Um, it's something that I've incorporated into pre-op discharge planning for orthopedic patients. Um, and today being Healthcare Decision Day, um, which is a national kind of holiday where people are encouraged to make advanced directives and talk about advanced care planning, I'm here today to just help you kind of navigate through that and what I have prepared is a um, more, it's less of a kind of frequently asked questions presentation, but it's more along the lines of a um, conversation. So we're gonna have a group conversation about some of the key elements that you wanna discuss with your family or your friends, your healthcare providers, before you even think about completing the actual advanced directive. So we're gonna get into that, but I'm gonna show you a quick little video that kind of sets the stage
So today is Healthcare Decision Day. So it's the 16th of April every year. It's the day after taxes. Does anyone know why? <laughs> there are only two things that are certain in life: <laughs> death and taxes. So um, there we go. Um, so today, what we're going to do is um, we're going to basically have conversations about advanced care planning, and I'm going to explain the difference between advanced care planning and an advanced directive in a few moments, but. What we're going to really do is give you some time to just, um, talk about advanced care planning, reflect on your values and beliefs, select a health, you know, talk about what goes into selecting the appropriate health care agent or the person that would speak for you if you couldn't speak for yourself, um, express your wishes, and share your plan. So we're going to go, I'm going to ask some group questions. Um, please only answer questions that you feel comfortable sharing with the group. Um, you can use personal experiences, things you may have heard in the media, um, you know, you can make up scenarios if that's more comfortable for you, but it, the, the best way to do this is to really have some group engagement. Um, so. so when we talk about advanced care planning, it's really the conversation. So advanced care planning is the whole process that leads up to um, what goes into what you would actually need to do to complete an advanced directive. An advanced directive is a legal document that is your wishes in writing. So, and that's where you choose a healthcare agent to speak for you on your behalf. And that goes into a document, it's legally executed either in front of a notary or two witnesses, and that becomes the document that tells your healthcare providers and your family and your agent and whomever what you would want done in the event that you couldn't speak for yourself. But really, that's only as good as the process of getting there. So if you've made an advanced directive, but you never even talked to the people that you've listed on that advanced directive, um, you know, they're not going to be very prepared to actually speak on your behalf. So the advanced care planning piece is making it more comfortable, talking about it, um, thinking, you know, reflecting and thinking about what's important to you, um, what quality of life means. Um, and then in having that conversation with the person that you're actually going to pick to be your agent. Um, so hopefully today we can kind of make it a little more comfortable and that way you'll feel, feel like that you can move on to the next step and, and talk to those who, who are in your life. So the first thing um, I want to do is kind of get a sense of what you understand about advanced care planning already. So. Um, does anyone ha want to share any fears or concerns they have about this type of planning? Yep. Um, thinking about, I, it's hard to imagine now what, you know, I could go, I could leave here and get in a car accident and not be able to speak for myself, mm -hmm. but it's just, it's really hard to know, I don't know, I'm only 30, so <coughs> I probably want to get any life-sustaining treatment at that point but I don't know right. it's hard to balance out because then you know I don't know would my husband be able to handle if I were in a vegetative state mm -hmm. and be able to sustain that and w like how would that be fair to him and my other family members so that's you raised some really great issues so the first is what I'm hearing is you know thinking about the future you don't know you know you'd be hard to make a decision today about what you might want in the future but the important key is that anyone over the age of 18 should have an, a document like this because um, if you think about some of the media cases that have come across, they've mostly been young women who've um, ended up in a um, 
permanent vegetative state and their family has to battle to try to figure out what, what's best. Um, so really taking that step and talking with your husband about this type of thing to find out if it's even something that he'd be comfortable doing may be the, the, the first step. Yeah? Um, you can change it every 10 days to what you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you, what you write now is forever. Exactly. Because so I think about some of the you know advances I'll have in medicine, and I mean, I'm a lot older than 39, but um, I just know that I can update and update it and update it and update it. Mm -hmm. so. That's true. What's, what's an advanced directive plan for me today may look a lot different, you know, a week from now, depending on what happens in my personal life. Um, so that's another good thing to remember. Is this is a <coughs> fluid document. It's not something that, you don't write it in stone. Um, it is important to get in writing, but there does need to be thoughtfulness along the way as to, you know, as things change, you would want to make changes to your document. Yeah? Um, I have um, concerns about sort of the, the details around it, having just watched my father-in-law go through the end of life at 90. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother-in-law, who has a certain <coughs> amount of dementia, navigate the end of life. Um, I feel like there are so many things that happen that really are not covered in any way we think about advanced care directives or planning today. Mm -hmm. And you know, a DNR doesn't work if you never have an issue, mm -hmm. you know, code or something. You know, uh, when you have Alzheimer's or dementia, how do you? How can you approach things before that happens? And I think that, um, you know, wanting a high quality end of life is just so much more complicated, even with smart people who try to plan. Um, and so certainly, um, you know, and issues about ending your life when you're not going to code, let's say, but you're you know, you're about to go, but your respiratory system is still strong, you're in horrible pain, no matter how much morphine or whatever. Mm -hmm. There are just so many things that I saw happen that, you know, I hope there are ways to sort of approach them, because these are people who, you know, are in a good assisted living facility. I mean, they have advantages. And, um, um, and, um, and, and I, I, I guess that's the main thing. I also felt by spending a lot of time in this assisted living facility, I learned a lot about sort of how people, what happens to a variety of people at the end of life. And I know, I sort of better understand my mother saying, no, when that happens, you need to kill me. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, mom, we really need to talk about this, but I know, I kind of know what she means, yeah. you know, and it's just, I don't know, it's an interesting and an eye-opening thing yeah. to sort of be able to understand better some of those issues. Definitely, and that's exactly what we're going to want to do is kind of use some of those personal experiences to make your document, you know, it doesn't have to be just those initials and those check marks on the document. You can really make it speak to what you've experienced in, in your life and, and make it more pertinent to what you, what you do wish. Yeah? Your mother is lucky that that you want to talk about it because it's the opposite with us. We have the directive, but it doesn't seem like ever the right time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Kids don't want to talk yeah. about it. And there are some handy little um, tools out there now. Um, this is a really important subject that people all across the country and all over the world are starting to realize that you know we need to have some culture change around this topic. Um, and so there are actual games that you can bring to your families. There's one called My Gift of Grace. It's a card game, and it talks about um, all sorts of different questions from, you know, what would you want on your, 
you know, it, it's, it, they're asked in a kind of fun way. Um, so like, what would your epitaph be? What, what would you want the last five words to, to say about you? Um, but it, you know, it gets down deep to some of the, but it's a, it's a nice way to kind of broach the subject if it's, it's uncomfortable. I and mean, we'll get into some, some more of that, of maybe some other ways that people have, have brought it up with their family. My family's sick of hearing about it. Every, <laughs> every family dinner, I'm like, so, you know. And we've I've heard of, um, you know, if you can bring a little laughter to it, it's not a bad thing. I've heard of uh, one provider who at Thanksgiving tells his family that every Thanksgiving, it's no one gets to eat their pumpkin pie until you oh. tell us how you want to die, oh. that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can, you know, so there are. It's an uncomfortable subject. That's why so many people think about it, but don't end up actually talking about it with even their healthcare providers. And healthcare providers, same way. It's an uncomfortable topic for them to bring up with their patients. Um, so if we can, and, and it's great that you're here today because that's kind of what we're trying to do, move past that. We're trying to get this out in the open and start talking about it. So thank you all for sharing. Um, if any of you have completed an advanced directive in the past, what did you hope that that would accomplish for you? There would be no fighting among family or friends. Yeah. It would be very clear. Mm -hmm. <coughs> no drama. <laughs> he, he said about how if you were the agent, how comforting it would be to be very sure that you know what this person wants. Yeah, absolutely. We sometimes call it a gift to your family or your friends or whomever you've cho you know chosen to speak for you that it's clear. <coughs> they don't have to guess. Did you hope that it would be retrievable in your healthcare record and everyone would know where it is? Yes. Yeah. Yes, as a matter of fact, I, I feel like I've, I've talked to the, to the doctor and said what, but I, I'm not, that thing, I don't, I guess you have to have that document. You know, you, you can't just say to them and they're putting right. it down in the computer and say, yeah. okay, this is what she wants. Yeah, so you need to have it in writing. It needs to be a legal document, especially now. So um, there used to be ways to document it in a less formal way, um, but however, recently in New Hampshire, they implemented a surrogacy law, which makes it really important that if the, that you have it in writing, because now in New Hampshire, they've appointed a state list of family members in a certain order that can make healthcare decisions on your behalf if you don't have an advanced directive in place. So now it's even more important that you have that in writing, especially if you don't trust every member on that list, <laughs> and you might want to make, you know, or shift up the, the order. Um, not that order doesn't work for everyone, so. Well, you know, and the other thing is that they're so approachable. Now, they, what do you want? Do you want to take that medication? You don't have yeah. to take it if you don't want to. So it's, everything is your choice. Yeah. So you begin to feel like, oh, they know me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, it's all about shared decision making. So some of the responsibility lies on you, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the vial of life. Is that just for your meds, or can you put your advanced directives in that? That's a good question. So you those big, looks like a big pill bottle. So yeah, in that, there's a magnet that goes on your refrigerator, and it kind of what what that is for is it helps kind of tell everyone where everything is. So if you do have an advanced directive, you could put. Um, I don't think an advanced directive would necessarily fit in there, That's but what I you could fit um, in the New Hampshire booklet, and I have some. Uh, for those of you who live in Vermont, there's wallet-sized cards that you could write who your healthcare agent is and where the, you know, where the original of your advanced directive is, and you could put that in your vial of life. 
So when the, if an ambulance comes, it's supposed to look at that, I think, right away. Right. right? That's the idea. Because if you don't have it, then it's too late. And even if you get in, isn't it, they have to resuscitate. They have to resuscitate you, unless you have a do not resuscitate order, which is a whole topic for a different day. <laughs> Um, so advanced care planning is planning ahead for the future um, and thinking about if a sudden injury or illness were to occur. So not something that you know, you know, not a chronic illness, not something that you know the, the course of your treatment, but if something were unexpectedly to happen, who, who's going to speak on your behalf and, and what are they going to, how are they going to know that they're making the decisions in the way that you would want them to? So the three points that we want everyone to consider is the first one, choosing a healthcare agent, a decision maker, and it's all of those terms that we've mentioned. So all, you know, an alternate decision maker, a durable power of attorney for healthcare, proxy, um, I think that's, but agent is the common one that we use mostly in the, in the healthcare system. Um, so then the second thing would be discussing and deciding on the goals of healthcare if you ever, like, so we use the example of a severe brain injury. But you can use a car accident or anything that, that you know, makes sense to you. Um, and then recognizing if there are any values or beliefs, personal, cultural, religious, spiritual, any sort of considerations that you need to have that were going to influence your health care. So thinking about what's important to you. And then maybe seeking out someone in that community. So if it's a faith-based community, maybe seeking them out if that's important to you to kind of see what where that group stands on some of these questions. Um, and so we will get into that a little bit more. So we're gonna next start with exploring some of your own um, experiences. Um, so I think probably most people in this room have heard of or experienced a situation where someone, either a family member or a friend's family member, experienced a sudden illness or injury. Um, so I wanted to just give you a few moments to think about that, and then um, if we could share, share if you feel comfortable sharing that experience, and then maybe what you took away from that, or what you learned, or what maybe you thought how that would relate to your care, and, and maybe what you would or would not want based on that experience. Did you, excuse me, did you say that the advanced directive is really about only about the sort of more immediate uh, accident or sudden issue as opposed to end of longer term chronic. I just think I'm no. So so no. So it's we, we think about a sudden injury right. um, as opposed to some you know events that you know are going to happen because that kind of changes the way you might sure. complete your advanced directive. But um, once you complete an advanced directive, as it's it covers all situations. So does anyone want to share an experience and maybe how that, what you learned from that experience? Yeah. That when my mother died, uh, she had a type, a type of illness that could go on for ages. They could give her blood transfusions, all that kind of stuff. But my older brother and sister made the decision. And I always felt, you know, I was a youngster at the time, in my early 20s and probably at the most, and it would be, I would have felt better if I had known, I understood why she made the decision, or why they made the decision not to put her on life support mm -hmm. and just let it take its course, as the doctors had recommended. But I always felt left out. Mm -hmm. And Same. I don't want my, my own kids to feel that way. Yeah. Thank you. 
So kind of figuring out who should be involved in the conversations, yeah. and kind of including everyone at least in the, the thinking behind it. Right. Yeah. That, that raises a question, and that is, you can designate one or two people, but how can you or can you have a legal document that involves the other members of the family? Say we have three children. Yeah. And you want them all to feel somewhat included and, and, and equally involved. That's a great question. So, so in the documents, you can list as many people, even though there's, in like the New Hampshire, I think, and the Vermont document, there's two lines. There's an agent and then an alternate agent. And the idea is that you want to pick one person first to be the go-to. So you can have as many people involved in the discussions, and you can list that, and there's some free text area on the document. Um, you can list as many people as you think should be involved, but at the end of the day, you want one person for the for the doctors to go to to, to say, you know, what's the what's the consensus of the group or what's the decision. Um, in the event that you know that everyone isn't in agreement, there needs to be one person. But you can you can list as many people to be alternate agents, and then what's going to happen is you list them in order. And, then, and you can, if it's really, if you have no preference, you can choose age order or if someone maybe you feel knows your wishes a little more than someone else, you can list them in that order. But they're going to go to that top person first. If they're unable or unwilling, let's say it becomes too difficult for them to make this decision, they'll go to the next person and then so forth. But you can list as many people as you want to be, and you could say that you'd like them to be part of the discussion. Yeah? So can that individual overrule what the others felt? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, yeah. So if you list, if, yeah. So that there needs to be. It gets too too complicated right. if you give kind of equal authority <coughs> to each member of the group. But you can put comments, and as long as you're talking about with this this with them ahead of time that you want them to come to somewhat of a consensus, um, you can write that in the document. Say that you would like discussion and agreement. But ultimately, yes, there there's one person who makes the. the and what happens if they can't reach a consensus? I mean, this would be a terrible situation. This would. So this is what we're trying to avoid. So if you put one person that you think knows your knows you and would speak for you, right. not for themselves, but for you, um, that's the goal. Is that if you have the the less people that you have in charge of making that final decision, the the easier it should be. <coughs> and that's all ideal. You know, that's ideal situations. There are things as such such things as. Um, ethic committees and, and folks that do get involved, but um, if it's in writing and it's clear and you're having these conversations ahead of time, the, the hope would be that it would be a little more straightforward. Yeah, did you? I was just going to say that I am actually a volunteer chaplain, chaplain at Gifford, and we have a garden room where people come really at end of life, and there really are more than I would like to say examples when there are four children, they've had the conversation, blah, 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 but there's one that just can't let the mother or dad go, and it's and it just puts so much strain on the others, but at the time of the conversation, they were all on board and everything mm -hmm. seemed fine. And I would just think it would be really hard to be that agent that had to say, it doesn't matter what you think or whatever. It's just, I mean, I'm not, you know, just bringing it up as an example because yeah. it's just so often hard. And then another time we heard a panel from the Conversation Project, and there was an ICU nurse there, and the same kind of thing happened. So we do, we do the best we can. and. That's all we can do, you right. know, and that's why we're here, really. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Then the next thing, 
you know, after you think about kind of what experiences you have to, to pull from, you would want to think about what living well means. Um, and I think the point that we brought up earlier, that you, that you brought up earlier, was kind of living well can change over time. So it's not always going to be the same things that are important to one person are not going to be the same that are important to another. And for that same person, over time, living well, that may change as well. So um, does anyone want to share any experiences or activities that are most important for you to live well? To me, I, I would want to put slash dying well. Okay. <laughs> so what does that mean to you? I would like to elect how I'm going to die. Okay. And let my wife and children know what I would like so that they are free from having to make the decision for me. Mm -hmm. So that it, it's more important to me in a sense to die well than it is to live well, if you will. Okay. And so to get to that, I guess to get to that explanation for your for your family, you know, thinking about what was it what was important for living well and once you're not able to do those things, that may mean that it's time to transition to thinking of dying well. Mm -hmm. But the key, um, one key um, experience that I have um, is a video I watched with a, um, a patient and a son, and they were having this conversation, and the son didn't realize that living well to the father at this point in life was that he was able to watch a certain sports game every Sunday. You know, the son thought how awful his life was because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't go outside any longer, he wasn't able to, to be very active, but the father was very content and felt that living well was, he was still able to, to, to have this great life because he was able to watch this one sporting event every Sunday or whatever. So that, that's the key is that even those that we love and feel know us the best don't always know what something as simple as living well means to us. So just getting that getting that out and kind of asking our, our family and friends what, what that means to them. Um, does anyone have any examples of kind of what helps you when you face serious challenges in your life? Or you can think about it and kind of that's a key that you might want to share with um, your agent, or your agent could think about that, like what would be helpful to them when they're trying to make these decisions on your behalf? Okay. So the first thing that we want to think about when we're advanced care planning is um, choosing that person. And so we talked about this, that sometimes it's difficult because it's not always a family member. It's not always a spouse, um, so we want to think about who that would be. And knowing that there are some major responsibilities to being an agent, so feeling like you have all the weight of your whole entire family on your shoulders, making these decisions for, for your loved one, um, but they could be making choices about medical care, um, decisions on living situations, um, and so, so on and so forth. So, um, does anyone has anyone thought of who their agent would be, or does anyone have any questions about how to come to that decision? My husband is my agent, my half sister, and my best friend. Okay. Yeah. Have you talked to them? Have you asked? Oh yes, them? Okay, yes. Yeah. And my children all know what I want. And yeah, yeah. Okay. 
him. And I'm very clear, like the Thanksgiving dinner, I'm, I'm a little repetitive. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I also work in assisted care living, nursing home. So it's very clear to me yeah. what my decisions are. I just hope they follow through with them. Do you think that they will? That's the next well, question. Well, my sister was very funny. She says, you know, I, I, I have trouble putting my dog down. I'd have trouble putting you down. I'm oh. <laughs> 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 so. still working on that. So hopefully, though, um, you know, since you've talked about it and you've been so honest and straightforward, hopefully, and especially if it's in writing, yes. you know, she joked about that, but hopefully she would feel confident. Well, that's why I have confident. two other, my husband and my friend yes. Tracy. Yeah. So if she was at, if she couldn't make that choice, then yeah. Yeah. Great. Anyone else have anyone that they've already thought of to be their healthcare agent? Spouses. Spouses. Can anyone think of why it might be um, difficult, or maybe someone wouldn't choose a spouse? Yeah. To have someone that's maybe more neutral and. Um, I always get the word objective wrong, but mm -hmm. either less objective, yeah. I guess. So someone that's like removed from the situation right. a little bit and maybe is not so emotionally charged in that yeah. moment. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's also important to think about the alternate because we think about accidents, for example. Yeah. Um, typically a husband and wife might be driving along together and something happens. Um, so picking the alternate is almost as important as picking the first Absolutely. The, the agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> when you're talking about choosing an agent is have you, have you asked them? So like your example, you talk to them, they're on board, they've agreed that they could do it even though it would be difficult. Um, because there may be some family members that really feel like it would be too much for them and you wanna know that before you put their name in writing. Um, have you talked with them enough so that they do know what's important for you for living and dying well? Um, will they, act on your behalf and speak for you rather than kind of speak for themselves? Um, and can they make decisions in a really difficult difficult time? Do they work well under pressure? Is stress something that's really gonna affect them in that, in that decision-making time? So then reflecting, thinking about why why you chose that person. And just remember, it doesn't have to be a family member. It doesn't have to be a spouse. The, the guidelines you know, are that they're 18 and that they have capacity to make the decisions that you would be able to make if you were able to speak for yourself. Um, so if, if there is someone in your life that you feel knows you well enough and would be um, confident in making those healthcare decisions, you can, have, you can ask them and they can be your, your agent. And so we talked a little bit earlier about how difficult it can be to bring this up with, with the person you're thinking of choosing. Um, so does anyone have any, I, I mentioned the game, like my gift, my gift of grace. Um, does anyone have any clever ways or ways that they have asked or brought up the topic with anyone? Yeah. I think the book you might have been referring to was The Immortal about the father that watched TV and wanted his chocolate ice cream. I think those are the yep. two things okay. that I remember. And I just called the how, um, and they had 100 people on the waiting list for that book, 
They have five copies. It's called Being Mortal. It's by Atul Gawande, which is an Indian name. It's G-A-W-A-N-D-E. And so we're doing this in Bedford, and we've got a discussion group on April 28th. We have another one in early June. Mm -hmm. And I can see making it kind of mandatory. One of the wonderful things about the book is there are lots of anecdotes. There are these wonderful little vignettes, and it's so really easy to just take it in, I think, and to say, oh, well, that's why you're asking me to do this. Mm -hmm. But this is a doctor whose whole medical M-O-O-M changed after his father was at end of life. And he realized that's what's really most important, at least in his family, was the quality of life. There was a 34-year-old woman who delivered a baby, and they found during her pregnancy that she had cancer. And she and her husband wanted to just be with what was and not have all of these things going on. And it was her parents that were saying, oh, there's got to be another test. There has to be another procedure. You know, do this, do that. And if she really had been on her request had been honored, she would have had a completely different experience at end of life. She might have lived three months more, but the quality wouldn't have, it made me cry, the quality wouldn't have been anywhere near what it might have been. So mm -hmm. it could be a mandatory summer reading book for your family. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a great idea. And maybe even one that should be mandatory for all college freshmen going in. coming in is so yeah. true. It's so yeah. I wonder um, if people have heard, there's a movement abroad. It's called the Death, <coughs> Death Cafe. Yeah. I don't know if there's that kind of thing here. I don't know if there is in the town we just moved here from, where it's this kind of thing that people just get together, and it's anecdotes. And, um, and I haven't been to one, so I don't know if it's has a uh, Valley Terrace has them sometimes, and uh, Bayada Hospice I think has had one, and I think we're playing another one. Yep, and then so Hartford, I think, uh, Hartford, Hartford Aging in Heartland, yeah. Hartford. Do they have um, them every now and then? So you just said Bayada and Valley Terrace? Yep. Okay, so, you know, that's a great point. You know, there are communities that want to have these conversations in groups like Thetford. Um, I think there's a group happening in Norwich, a community engagement type event around this um, this summer. Um, I think Lyme had one. Lyme had one recently, and their parish nurse is available to help people, you know, with these conversations. So, um, you know what? I'm gonna when I have I have a po uh, post survey that I'm gonna ask all of you to complete. If you have any suggestions. Or, or events that you've heard of, and maybe if you have any suggestions of how to get that information across, <laughs> if you can just add that, that would be really helpful because you know there are these conversations happening. It's just a matter of letting everyone know and how you know what's the best way to do that. Yeah, uh, did you have something, Bill? I was just going to say PBS has also done a one-hour oh, really? uh, video of that book. Really? And um, in this day and age, I think you can go online and oh. and find it and stream it, and it's mm -hmm. um, so frontline. What? PBS Frontline. Yes, exactly. For those who don't want to read the whole book, the, the video is quite good, too. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, recently, there was uh, um, an article in Kaiser Health News on their website about um, choosing when to die. Mm -hmm. and, and it happened to be focused on doctors. But the uh, part of the <coughs> thing that surprised me was there's there are certain places where doctors are allowed to order enough medication mm -hmm. for the patient to kill himself if he wants to. Um, and, I and I knew that Oregon had some sort of assisted suicide law, yeah. but a 
apparently Vermont does too. Yep, yes. so Vermont has the um, right, Death, with Death with Dignity Act. So I, I didn't realize that till, till now. So Maybe you want to move. Maybe you want to move. Yeah. I, I just, if I live in New Hampshire, I mean, so if I get to this situation, can I just go to Vermont and stay in a motel? And <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that um, it is hard, especially in from this the Upper Valley. Uh, we're unique in the sense that we are divided by a river, but we, you know, are one big community. A lot more than a river. People who live in Vermont receive their care, at, you know, in New Hampshire and vice versa. So, it, you know, those are good questions to think about. And yep, Vermont is one of the states that has that law. And I think you have to be a resident of the state. Yeah, for how long? Three months. <laughs> More than overnight. You have to be. I think it's legitimate residency. I don't think they. In, I was thinking in choosing an agent, you have to start thinking about what kind of an agent you would be and how, how different. We're talking that like these things are all just, I mean, Funny. we're human, human beings, and this is all very, very different. And I've just finished the, uh, the book you were talking about. And, you know, I, I, the only person I can think of that was, I had an outstanding death was my brother in law who, who chose, you know, in the, in the book where the girl was just almost forced by her parents to have one more, one more chemo, one more chemo, mm -hmm. and she really, but this, my brother-in-law chose the, 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 all these, these the, the chemos, chemos, anything that anybody, a doctor would say, 2% chance of five days life, whatever, and, you know, uh, and to have experienced how, uh, he did it, he did die at home, but, but it was a, a, a unbelievable uh, uh, death, so, um, that, you know, that was an incredible experience to me because everything that po could possibly happen to him, you know, sores all over him and whatever. So um, to be, and, and his wife was a nurse, so she took care of him. She, she knew he wanted to be that last breath to be, you know, um, so, but to be that agent, to be that agent is probably as difficult as you're to ask somebody to mm -hmm. do that for you. So acknowledging that it's a really important role but it's a very difficult role yeah mm -hmm. so you have to think about what you're asking somebody to do yeah yeah another resource i found helpful is something called five wishes which is a multi-page i don't know 16 page or something and one of the things about it is it asks it it states a number of things and then invites you to cross them off so that it, if you don't if it doesn't apply to you so it raises a bunch of issues around religion or mm -hmm. not religion around uh, just, just more of a, like a work a workbook to kind of get through some of these and I think that's actually what Florida and a few other states actually use in place of their advanced directive booklet so um, and it's you can download that right online I, and I believe. It's, uh, it is usable in I think it's 42 states but it's mm -hmm. Vermont New Hampshire nope. Massachusetts we're difficult what is it called again? Five wishes. Five wishes. Thank you. Um, just one point also is um, your health care. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock, <coughs> for example, there are care managers available. There are social workers um, who you can go and have a conversation with and actually work through these booklets with. And if you wanted to bring the person um, who you're thinking about being your agent with you, 
um, they can kind of help facilitate that whole process. So um, if it is difficult for you to bring this up with someone, maybe just ask them to come along and hear, you know, have someone who's really knowledgeable about these topics kind of walk both of you through that. That might be helpful. And just, um, we are developing a program called Honoring Care Decisions, which is offering just that. So facilitated conversations with you and your healthcare agent so they can hear every question you're being asked. Um, and then they have time to kind of reflect on what you've said and maybe share some of their own concerns or experiences. Did you have one more thing? I just want to say quickly that another whole issue is the funeral. That could be $25,000 or $200, you know. And there's a woman that's speaking in Norwich. Her name is Annie K. Ross. And I think it's at the church and it's coming up. But it's, I think it's February 25th, maybe. Um, February. And it, what? Not, not February. I'm sorry, April. It'll be a year from now. I'm sorry, but by this. Also, what is possible? Like, there was this family that just had so little money and they took a cardboard, I mean, it was a cardboard coffin. And the children decorated with their grandmother that had died, and they put the body in, they drilled the home. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, it might have cost $50. I don't know, but it's just, there's so many ways to look at all these pieces. Yeah. Can you repeat that, what that means, when she's speaking? Um, I believe it's April, thank you, 25th, at the Norwich Church, and her name is Annie K. Ross. And, and she's with, like, an alliance from the state of Vermont around funerals. It's the first time I've heard of it, but they're doing really good work. And that's once, if, if you want to take that, I mean, that, doing that much planning isn't for everyone, but it's, you know, it is helpful, just as helpful as having your healthcare wishes in writing. Um, if you do take those other steps and get that information and talk about that, you can also include that in either Vermont or New Hampshire's documents. Um, and you can, so if you want it all in one place, Vermont's kind of is tailored to that a little bit. They ask you some questions about um, disposition of remains and organ donation and all sorts of things like that and funeral arrangements. New Hampshire's does not specifically ask those questions, but there's a long free text kind of area and you can also attach other pages if, if it's important for you to write those kind of instructions out too. Yeah. The Aging Resource Center also has a uh, planning your funeral, I believe it is. Oh, right. It's excellent. Yeah. Right. It's that, that same group that you've mentioned are the ones who are heading it. Would you address the question of honoring health care decisions? I think you're talking primarily about uh, care agents, health care agents, but what about the medical community? There's been some press on uh, medical community being uh, afraid of litigation and so sometimes do things that don't honor requests. And I don't know whether that's widespread or it's just what makes the headlines occasionally. So that's a, that's a tough question. I, I'm not sure, and I might ask Tim to, to, to provide some insight on that question. Yeah, I think uh, I'm a doc over at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I work closely with Maria on some of these issues. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think um, every once in a while you'll see sort of an exceptional circumstance like that where there's some fear of litigation and maybe the patient's wishes aren't. Um, perfectly respected, although I'd say probably the the other side of the coin is really the big, you know, the real story that 99.99% of people really are, are fearful of not knowing a patient's wishes and as much as they can know the answer and know that they're doing exactly what their patient would want, that's, that's really their goal. And so if in particular it's in writing, 
locked down, the family all kind of understands the wishes, that makes the providers feel like, oh good, I'm, I'm lined up, I'm not making some mistake. Thank you. So um, the second thing, so the first and you know most important thing is thinking about who would speak for you. The second thing we would want you to do is to explore your goals for medical care. So that's when we talked a little bit about considering a situation where there's a sudden illness. So um, here's an example of a, a situation to consider. So you have a sudden or unexpected accident or stroke. Doctors have determined you have a brain injury that leaves you unable to recognize yourself or loved ones. Your doctors have said that they are um, that you are not expected to recover these abilities and life-sustaining treatment, such as a breathing tube or feeding tube, um, are required to keep you alive. So if you think about a situation like that and then you ask yourself, you know, what would you want? Um, so in, in, in those sort of situations, keep in mind that comfort care is always, is always something that is available and your agents could, that's gonna be um, available. Um, would you want, knowing that you're gonna be kept comfortable, would you want life-sustaining treatment or would you want to be allowed to die naturally? Die. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it, it's also, I, I agree with that, but um, you say naturally. Uh, well, I guess yeah. they already say you won't live without the support, mm -hmm. but I want to like make sure I don't live with, and not sort of take you off and then you're hanging out for two months. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, it would be nice to say, I mean, as I think of it, because I think that parents, thinking about my own dad's death, don't necessarily think about their kids, and sometimes they just don't have the ability to deal with these issues. But I'd want to say, you know, keep me alive for whether it's days or whatever, just so whoever wants to say goodbye mm -hmm. to the immediate family can do that, and they'll let me go. You know, yeah. which wouldn't be for me, yeah. but it would be for them if they want to. And, and then, yeah, death, I go. Yeah. Close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But those are exactly the type of instructions that would be important to have in your Thank you. So the third thing, and it's kind of along the lines, you kind of gave me a nice segue, is exploring any sort of religious, cultural, or personal beliefs or wishes that you would want to include and maybe influence your care. So for that example, it would be very important for you to have family around and specific family around. So you would want to, your care would um, be influenced by making sure there was enough time to kind of get everyone in the room. Um, and so that's when you start thinking about what helps you face serious challenges. Um, and if you maybe don't know specifically where you're, if you are religious, where your organization stands on a certain topic and you wanna go seek out um, guidance from someone in that community, you know, make sure that you allow yourself the time to do that so you can make sure it reflects your, your wishes accordingly. Yeah. Um, I have the unique perspective of, I've been with um, Bayada Hospice now since August of 2011 and prior to that I'm from a big huge Italian Irish family and everybody just kind of knows what's going on with everybody but we're also a family that if something goes wrong medically it's like do whatever get worked up as mm -hmm. you know do all the tests in the world and figure it out and make it go away and now that I am a hospice worker it's a I'm seeing a very different mm -hmm. side and I have a very unique perspective but sometimes it's difficult that I'm the only one with that perspective um, but it's certainly given me a lot of reasons to think now like if something happened to me unexpectedly 
um, you know, maybe I wouldn't want life-sustaining treatment or be kept in that vegetative state because I don't, my husband couldn't afford to, mm -hmm. to maintain my life or whatever quality of life I had at that point. Um, and so it's just, it's very interesting now, but I think that I have more, <coughs> it's gonna be different than what other people in my family would choose, but I feel like I kind of have the insider track, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like you could share that insider track with your family and try to help them kind of mm -hmm. see why you would kind of choose certain things over others? Yeah, absolutely. So the next steps after today so would be to talk with your healthcare agent. So even if you've already completed an advanced directive, maybe um, with some of this new information or with some of this thinking, you would want to revisit and talk to them even if they've been your healthcare agent for years now. Um, and then, you know, if you want to take that next step of meeting with someone and, and talking with the facilitator or care manager um, or maybe your healthcare provider, if you want to get someone else in the loop to kind of help answer some more questions or make, you know, give you some other scenarios to think about. And then, once you feel like you have all the information you need and you feel like you can make informed decisions about your advanced care, completing an advanced directive is the, the big next step. Um, and once you've completed your advanced directive, it's important to make sure that you have copies given to all of those who need a copy. So anyone who you've listed as an agent or alternate agent, um, make sure you know where the original is kept, your health care provider, so anywhere you receive medical care, so whether, um, you know, anywhere, so your primary care doctor's office where you might have um, gone for a specialty care, um, any place where you think that you could go should have a copy on, uh, in your medical record. Um, so how to do that at Dartmouth is you would bring that to the Office of Care Management, which is located on the, um, in the main hallway there before uh, the food court, um, and you would hand it a copy to them. They don't need the original, just a copy and they can scan it into your healthcare record. And then any doctor that you see that has access to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock medical record would be able to access a copy of your advanced directive. Um, yeah, it should be kept in a place where it's easy to, to be found. So not maybe locked up um, with, you know, in a bank or with your attorney may not be the, the most appropriate place because then you know, accidents don't only happen you know, during business hours. Um, for those of you that live in Vermont, there is a Vermont uh, registry, so if you wanted to register your advanced directive with that, that's a database that um, anyone, you know, your healthcare provider could call to try to get a copy if they needed to. Just a, a note on that is it is, that is also a kind of Monday through Friday, nine to five sort of business as well, so um, while it's important to register, it's also important to have copies kind of distributed to anyone who would be key in your advanced care planning, yeah? I think, Maria, also that if when people our age do a lot of traveling, um, take one with you, take your advanced care directive with you when you travel because um, you, you won't be able to access the Dartmouth-Hitchcock mm -hmm. record necessarily yeah. if you're um, in Paris. Yeah, good point. Um, the other thing is if you do spend half the year someplace and half the year someplace else, um, maybe completing an advanced directive that's legally, um, that falls under their state statutes and recognizing that there are different laws from state to state. 
where most states will honor an advance directive from another state as long as it's not um, contrary to what that state that what's in that state statutes um, but if you do spend a lot of time in multiple states you might want to look into that um, another thing is there's um, wallet cards you can put in um, you know right behind your driver's license that says that you do have an advanced directive and you you know where it's kept and who to call and you can put that agent's name right on that card which might be helpful and someone mentioned the vial of life earlier which was a good idea to kind of maybe put one of those wallet sized cards in that as well and copies are recognized just as well as the original yep. okay then we want you to someone mentioned it earlier today too that it's not uh, once it's in writing it's not necessarily written in stone forever you want to review it you want to think about you know if there's ever some experience or new um, diagnosis or whatnot you want to take this out and look at it and make sure it's still accurate to how you actually feel so we have the five D's and these are good opportunities to kind of take it out and make sure to review your advanced directive so every decade um, if there's a death of a loved one take that out and make sure it still reflects you know what what's important to you or death of an agent and you know so you want to make sure that your agents are, are accurate um, divorce a diagnosis that's new that maybe changes your perspective um, or a significant decline in your health maybe time to take out the advanced directive and just make sure it still speaks to to you and then there'll be peace of mind to you and those you love um, any questions I wanted to make sure to leave I ooh, finished right on time so I could leave a half an hour for questions and if you did want to complete your advanced directive um, Looks like we have plenty of witnesses and my notary stuff, so <laughs> we can get that done today. Any questions? Yeah. So what, what's the difference between a, um, an advanced directive and a living will? Good question. So, um, advanced directive. So, in the New Hampshire document, there are two sections. There's the advanced directive, which is the section of the form where you pick who your agents are and you go through some healthcare scenarios and you initial kind of what you would want how you would want decisions made that's the advanced directive section two of the New Hampshire form is a living will and that's a paragraph that basically states it doesn't even mention your healthcare agent it just states in the event that you two doctors or a doctor and a nurse practitioner agree there's nothing else that they could do what would your you know your final wish be around uh, life-sustaining treatment especially a feeding tube and IV fluids so artificial nutrition and hydration so it's more of just a kind of final statement that's a support document for the, the people that you've chosen to be your healthcare agent. So just another form to say, you know, there wasn't any conflict between what you wrote in your advance directive and what you actually said you would want in an end of life situation. And that's a legal one too? I mean, I have one of those, but that's a legal document. Yeah, that's a legal document. They're notarized or witnessed as well. I'm not sure if this is the place for the question, but uh, I'm an organ donor or registered as an organ donor. How does that impact end of life um, decisions? That's a great question. I um, so it would be your you know your agents and working with your healthcare team to kind of figure out at what point I think it makes sense to consider that. Um, I mean, is there any imp uh, point in the process where doctor would step in and say we need to keep this person alive you know at least a machine or whatever 
until we've harvested an organ beyond where the family might want that to go on? So I, I don't know that if, if, it would, if it was beyond what the family wanted or the agent wanted. I, I don't think that would be the case, but I, I, it would be probably an ongoing conversation between whoever the agent is and the family and the, the doctor, the healthcare team who's caring for, for you. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. <laughs> you can't you express your own desire in that sort of, you know, small print part that, you know, if at all possible, um, if my organs can be donated, I'd like to make sure the time is spent so they can be donated before my family has to, you know, makes that decision. So yeah, you can, in Vermont's form, there's a whole section about that, and you can free write whatever you feel makes sense to how you feel about how you would want organ donation kind of prioritized in your care. Okay. It does make sense to add that information into an advanced directive. Yeah. I can't remember where it was. So that's the thing. So if you are from New Hampshire and you're using the New Hampshire form, sometimes I pull out the um, Vermont booklet because there are there's helpful language in that, in the Vermont form that if because um, New Hampshire's form doesn't mention organ donation or funeral arrangements at all. So if you if you did want to include some of that and you're kind of not sure exactly how to word some of it, there's nothing that says you can't take the Vermont booklet and use some of that language in the free text portion of your advanced directive. Yeah. If I were an organ donor, and I know many, many, many years ago, I made that decision at Hitchcock. Where would I go now to find out? Do you know where I would go to find out if that's still legally there and so forth? Or so I don't know at, at the hospital where you would where that's documented. That's um, you on your driver's license. That's what I was going to say. It's usually on a, the back of your yeah, driver's I'll license. I'll look at that. I hope I have them on. But you can put it on your, you know, it's as part of your driver's license registration, but you can also put it in an advanced directive if another place. Yeah. I had a friend who worked in anatomy and psychiatry um, office, and she did say that there are some sometimes when they can't accept the patient because they have too many to work on already here at Mary Hitchcock. Okay. And the timing, too, is obviously. Right. So. Right. So you, but you're, Every intention of you could could want to be an organ donor. Whether or not that actually right. is the case is, is hard right. to right. to say for certain. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? I'm going to stick around. Um, so if you want, oh yeah, I just want to put forth a scenario and just get people's feelings on this. It's Thanksgiving and the family is all around, whether it's a table or in the living room afterwards or anything. And there are grandchildren there from two to twenty-six. Yeah. Eight of them. So, do, does anybody have ideas of how you get your kids and grandchildren separated and talk about these things? Put them in bed. Twenty-six is okay. Twenty-two, but but I mean the preteens. Yeah. That that kind of age, maybe say from five to twelve. Or so. so you wouldn't want them to be there. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know. Oh, I just think you can never go wrong. Yeah. It's just, I believe in taking a child to a funeral, but having somebody with that mm -hmm. child who isn't interested in the funeral, or as you should say, attached to it, who can take them away. But my sister was seven when my dad died, and she didn't go to the funeral, and she's still sad about it, but it was, she never was asked. She didn't probably even, you know, really know what's going on. But I just think, you know, it's just, 
death is part of life. You are so adorable. They will love it that you're bringing it up. And the kids I won't have any problem with it at all. And your children that you're <laughs> yeah. concerned about. Yeah, right. It's really something. It's really a gift. It's really a gift. And maybe that is how, you know, we talked a little bit about how difficult these conversations are. And maybe that is kind of the key to getting some of this culture change rolling, you know, getting children, um, getting teens, getting people who've just turned 18 kind of thinking about this. And maybe if it's just a comfortable conversation that's had in a family, maybe it won't be by the time they're older, maybe it won't be very difficult for them to think about or talk about. Really good point. I think social media has really done yeah. this, can do a lot too with like the children and stuff. Like maybe preteens, like they're seeing, you know, some picture that's gone viral of uh, someone that's their age that's going through treatment or their parent is going through treatment and it might be able to help get the dialogue going and saying, yeah. if that were to happen to like grandma, how would you, you know, this is kind of the steps yeah. that mom you know, mom and dad would take to help grandma in this type of situation and just kind of introduce it to them a little bit. And Boston Children's Hospital has um, some like workbooks for children um, for all different ages. Um, one of them is like a coloring book, like draw pictures. And it's more, it's not necessarily asking the same, worded the same way that some of these questions are worded today, but it's more, you know, like quality of life, you know, what would the best day be for you? What would the worst day be for you? Um, if you were sick, who would you want around? And it has kids draw some of these ideas out. So um, I know there might be some ways like that to kind of in, to get kids thinking, but not necessarily in a in a way that's going to make them sad necessarily. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add to that. I actually think it's not a good idea to have kids. I think the conversation can be had with kids. I don't disagree with that at all, but if you're talking to your children about your end of life wishes and how, and the whole process, that's at a level that's very different from introducing the topic to, you know, a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old. I mean, the conversation could be about some really nitty-gritty things, um, you know, if it gets to the point where you're asking, well, you know, when I can't, you know, when I can't, uh, when I'm incontinent or when someone has to wipe me after I go to the bathroom, that's one of the things that I do not want. You know, I mean, those are the kind of conversations mm -hmm. that could come up, and I feel like maybe that's not the thing to introduce kids to. I just feel like it's a different, mm -hmm. maybe pretty hard. Clearly, maybe clearly. there are different stages of the right, conversation. Right. So maybe for the first conversation that you just kind of bring up some of the concepts, maybe right. it would be fine. And maybe it depends on the kids, you know, sure. and, and their, what they've been exposed to already, you know. So far, maybe they. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting. I, well, also their parents should make that decision. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, yeah, not the grandparents. But um, I, we took our six-year-old grandchild to Cinderella last night, and she's sitting on my lap. And Cinderella's mother dies. Actually, they didn't show her dying. And the prince's father dies later on in the movie. And, and I had to. She asked. I had to explain to her what kind of was going on. Uh, and she seemed to, at six, she seemed to understand the concept of death and mm -hmm. didn't really have an, an issue with it. But uh, it, it, it was interesting because I didn't know her thoughts on oh. death mm -hmm. at that point. So we, I was actually just talking to my mom about that in the car yesterday about Disney movies and how um, there's like parents dying in almost every Disney movie. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of, you know, what I think my first question was like, what's the point? But maybe that is it. You know, you have these 
opportunities along the way to to kind of bring up a, a scenario and talk about it with a, a young child. I know we have, we had a very very large family, and um, when my parents went to Wakes, we all went we all went always, and if we had questions while we were there, we asked the questions. Mm -hmm. And there there are kids who grow up and have never been to a wake or a funeral, mm -hmm. and that scares the bejeebas out of them, you know. Yeah. So at the age that you are, you'll understand certain things mm -hmm. as you get older. Yeah. But it doesn't point. hurt for younger people to go. I don't mean when I was probably one or two, but. You yeah. know, I went to my grandfather's, I was really young, and I think um, all my cousins were younger than, than I was, and we kind of, we turned it into like a social event, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think, I think we like did a little performance and sang a song, and it was, you know, yeah. we understood what was going on to the extent right. that a six-year-old does, but we were able to kind of make it an enjoyable thing, and I think that's maybe why I don't have any sort of, maybe I'm so comfortable with this topic. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. not, not too long ago, all, all deaths and births happened at home. Mm -hmm. yes. I was born at home, mm -hmm. and so the, this is, we live in a, uh, a sort of a makeup, made up world now anyway, so that getting back to real, real world is maybe not so bad. Yeah. yeah. I have this wonderful joke I just have to tell you. So this man had gathered his children and he said, we have to have this conversation. I know none of you want to, but I just want to make two things perfectly clear. I don't want to take fluids from a bottle or be plugged into a machine. They threw out my bottle of wine and unplugged my computer. <laughs> so, thank you all so much. This really was great. Um, I think the, the engagement that you showed today was really wonderful. Um, yeah? I do have one question. Do you sure. have any copies of some of your presentation? I can get that. The example of that list of responsibilities. Sure. Sure. I, so let me talk to Rebecca and find out what's the best way to distribute that. To me, um, I don't know if you signed in, if you gave an email address, because I'd be happy to. Well, if you registered online, you if you registered, so I can. Um, I'm happy to send out the PowerPoint presentation in an email to you, to you all. Thank you. Um, the other thing I did want to ask is if you would be so kind to just do a um, post survey, um, just to kind of see if anything changed after this presentation. Um,
And the other thing is you can always stop by the Office of Care Management front window there and ask to speak with us. There's always a social worker on call. Um, my, I'll, when I send her the email with my PowerPoint, I'll make sure my contact information is in there. So if you have questions, feel free to call me. Um, I'm a notary and there's no charge to this. So if, um, you know, take me up on this if this is something you've ever thought of doing. Um, and I do a two-for-one special. So <laughs> if you and your agent want to do your advanced directive, but I'm happy to help you with that. Would you jot down your email? Sure. And